0: 2009, November 24th, today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 40, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Right. So I thought I'd start with this picture. This is from Astronomy Picture of the Day. This is this is how I usually begin my day. First turn on the web, I usually look at this before I read my email. Today is one of those pictures that's just like, wow. Wow. Um, This is uh, recent, uh, uh, Cassini just did a close flyby of Enceladus to fly through the plumes. Um, This is a picture near the limb of Enceladus. Uh, Forget what the scale is here, but I think the smallest feature in these pictures is about a few hundred meters. (laughs) So there's the plumes. You can see them coming up through the cracks in the ice geysers on, on Enceladus. That this, this picture just has an, an immense wow factor, especially right there. You can see where the base of the plume is as it's coming up over the Terminator. It's like, wow, that's just so cool. Um, of course, Enceladus is a place which is of tremendous interest to us because it might actually be a place with life, or at least with liquid water. Whether it's life, eh, you know, that's always a good guess. Uh, uh, poor thing. Oh, yeah, it might help if I, <laughs> yeah, we're getting late in the quarter. Um, let's see, I want spots on, I want room lights off, and I want the first light, okay, good. So, in our continuing theme this week is intelligent life in the universe, and what we'd really like to do is find intelligent life. It's one of the big questions that, that everyone would like to know, is there anyone out for us there to uh, to talk with? And so today's lecture is going to cover a topic called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. What this is, is basically it is an attempt, fairly low cost actually, to search for signals from communicating intelligent civilizations elsewhere in our galaxy by looking for either radio emission or laser emission or something that is clearly of artificial origin. Turns out, as we're going to see, the best place to look is at radio wavelengths. There's a lot of reasons why radio is a very good carrier for messages. And there's some astrophysical reasons for places we might search that any technologically advanced civilization that has any knowledge of the basic physics of our galaxy would think of this place as a place If you're going to say, I'm here, this is a way to do it. Turns out there's a very natural frequency regime, which is defined by the atom hydrogen which any civilization should be able to know about and utilize. So it becomes a place where if you're sophisticated to know enough about the universe and want to find other people who are also sophisticated enough to know about the universe, we can craft ways of sending messages out or looking for messages that would sort of leverage that knowledge. We're going to look at the various searches that are actually underway. Uh, People are actually engaged in the practice of searching for extraterrestrial intelligences today at, at various levels. There are two different kinds of surveys. We're going to see both targeted surveys, which are going after particular stars, and so-called piggyback searches, which are kind of a catch-as-catch can where you piggyback on back at telescopes that are doing otherwise what we call mainstream science, according to the study people. And finally, at the very end, mention that we have not only are listening passively, but there has been an effort afoot at various times to transmit our own signals. Sometimes we intend these to go out sometimes not, and we've even now sent human artifacts on spacecraft that describe us on their way out of our solar system and into the depths of interstellar space. All of these are part of an effort to make contact in some way or another. So let me sort of remind you of the the basic question in hand. Is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? That's the big question, and we'd like to find an answer for this in a scientific way. What we mean by intelligent life, again, is we're looking for highly advanced technological civilizations. Pe- people like us, if you will, maybe not biologically, but certainly in terms of outlook and approach to the universe. We're going to be probably going to have to be looking for civilizations that are capable of communicating across interstellar distances. We need to have a technology capable of not only sending, but also receiving messages of some kind. We could probably add on to this, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, the possibility of a technology sufficiently advanced to allow you to travel physically between interstellar distances. But that's not the topic for today. Finally, an interesting uh, prerequisite for this is that not only do they have to be intelligent and capable, but they have to be interested in the problem. They actually have to be interested in not only finding and communicating with other intelligences, but they might, for example, be interested in being found. There's lots of ways to hide yourself. Now, yesterday we talked about the Drake Equation. We looked at that as a way of sort of beginning to frame this question of how many advanced, technologically advanced communicating civilizations there are in in the galaxy. And we boiled it down to this fairly long equation here. You'll notice my time signs are now right. I found my problem. And if we run through some basic, very optimistic guesses, we come up with about 50 communicating civilizations throughout our galaxy. It's hard to know whether this is a lower limit or an upper limit. There's two ways you can deal with this. One way of saying is, well, we've done everything shamelessly optimistic. This is an upper limit. There have to be no more than this number of civilizations in our galaxy. The other way of approaching it is that this might be giving us a hint of a lower limit, because either we've underestimated the lifetime of such civilizations, or perhaps we've run into some of the limitations of the Drake Equation. The Drake Equation, for example, assumes a single civilization on a single planet that stays put. As we're going to see tomorrow when we talk about interstellar travel and colonization, there are ways to bring population dynamics into play that could in fact lead to exponential growths of the number of possible civilizations, if the conditions, of course, are correct. But today we're going to be concerned with this question of how do we communicate? So there's two basic approaches that we're taking to looking for intelligent life in the universe. One of these I might call a sort of a bottom-up approach. And it, it is, to my mind, probably the most scientific, perhaps the most incremental and boring from the perspective of a lot of people, but it's the one that's probably going to give us real answers about the presence of life in general in the universe. Namely, let's go out and see what's out there. Let's actually survey for planets. Find the planets, figure out what the frequency of planets is, find those Earth-like planets by either indirect means, say by using the Kepler spacecraft or microlensing or any of these techniques we've put together to find Earth-like planets. Then with advanced technologies coming up in the next couple of decades, using spacecraft, build devices which are purpose-built to be able to take direct images of Earth-like planets around nearby sun-like stars. These might be space interferometers, they might be space coronagraphs, or various kinds of imaging technologies. And then once we take it, find these planets by imaging, use advanced imaging, te- imaging and spectroscopic technologies to actually do spectroscopy of these planets and look for the spectral biomarkers. Look for the things that say there are lifelike metabolisms, at least as we understand such metabolisms here on Earth, of going on in these planets. We find oxygen or ozone or methane. We see the red edge from vegetation. We might do variability studies and see changes in, in continents and oceans and climates. But look for places with signs of life. And so if you will, we're approaching it from the bottom up, from the place of look for the homes of life, look for the conditions conducive to life on those worlds, and then look for the actual signs of life. This is going to be the hard way to do this. It's going to take a long time to get the answers. It's it's literally going to be a generational kind kind of project, especially if we do detect something. Like I say, I, I personally, I, I'd like to think that if, if the funding is there and everything, maybe by the end of my effective working life or actual life, depending on how long it takes, we'll actually start seeing Earths and actually take pictures and maybe start being able to look for biomarkers. But there's another approach. And this is one that actually gets a lot more attention in, in, the, in the popular consciousness. And that is to simply skip all the hard stuff and go straight to the big answer to actually go out and look directly for signals from advanced civilizations. We know that our own planet we use electromagnetic radiation as our primary medium of of communication over long distances. That that medium of communication can in fact literally span the spaces between the stars. If other civilizations advance to their technologies more or less like we did, they don't have to look like us biologically, but they have to deal with the same physics as we do, the same chemistry as we do. And so it almost is inevitable that you will run across electromagnetic radiation, the secret of the atom. You will run across (coughs) the ability to manipulate electrons and atoms. And with those technologies, you should be able to immediately come across the ability to, to generate and interpret electromagnetic radiation. If that's true, and this medium of communication is correct then it's assuming that all intelligent civilizations that eventually arise will eventually develop the techniques to communicate over interstellar distances. It turns out to be surprisingly easy to do so, as I'm going to demonstrate in this lecture. It also assumes, again as we've mentioned before, that they are going to be, like us, curious about the world, because if they've developed these technologies, that means they've been asking questions in a logical fashion about the world and the universe. And when ultimately that curiosity will lead to the question, are we alone? And the interest in finding other intelligent beings. So this process is basically, like I said, it's skipping over all the hard stuff. It's going straight for the big answer, the one we all want to know. But it has a downside. Unlike the steady, methodical, bottom-up approach of looking for planets and abodes of life, going straight to the big picture is always a risk. Because if you don't find anything, you're not going to know why because you haven't clawed your way up through the process. You don't understand the basis of it yet. You simply failed without explanation. And so that's the reason why this approach to looking for life, going out for direct detection, must go hand in hand with those bottom up, slow and methodical ways. What I would call sort of the science, more to the science fiction side of things as opposed to the slow, methodical, hard science approaches have got to go together. Because if you don't, you're never going to understand the significant negative observations we've had so far. Of course, once these approaches, if they in fact do, break through, if we really did get a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization, uh, no one's going to pay attention to the planet searches anymore. It's going to be really disappointing in that regard, although exciting in other ways. So what today I want to talk about is this top-down approach, this go out and go for the big picture. The problem, as we saw last time, when we we, we talked about the Drake equation, if we take the Drake equation at face value, put its its fault aside, and you say there's 50 communicating advanced civilizations in our Milky Way galaxy, and if I take that number at face value, the mean distance between such civilizations is around 7,000 light years. We simply cannot bridge that with any technology we possess to physically travel those kinds of distances. We barely left our own our own solar system and it's taken us decades to do so. But it turns out if you really want to bridge those distances in a simple, cheap, and low energy expense way, talk is cheap. Radio communication using light, electromagnetic radiation, to send and code your messages out is surprisingly cheap. The messages travel at the ultimate speed in the universe, the speed of light. You can't break the speed of light no matter what you do. But you can send certainly light out at the speed of light, and you can code a lot of information in light. You can also do so for very low energy costs. Because what instead of just simply blasting them with raw power, what you do is you basically sacrifice power for order. You send out signals that have patterns that are not found in nature. It's very easy to code those up and code them in such a way that even if you have a trickle of power from a source, you can dig that changing artificial nature of that signal will come up out of there with plenty of observation. Now the question, of course, is we've got a tremendous amount of electromagnetic spectrum to use, from the lowest frequency radio waves, which we use to communicate with submarines underwater, to the highest energy gamma rays that come out of nuclear processes. So which ones are we going to choose? Pretty clearly, those that are tied to nuclear processes and atomic processes like x-rays and gamma rays, we're probably not going to use because those require tremendous amounts of energy. They're kind of very not very economical. And frankly, anything that requires you to communicate with someone by lighting off nukes, kind of dangerous. We want to use something a little more straightforward and, and actually has a fair amount of information density. And that will turn out to be two areas. What we want to do is we want to find electromagnetic regimes where there are not normally natural sources of radiation or there are minimal natural sources of radiation to get in our way. We want to stand out. We want to look distinctive. There's two wavelength regimes of light that are going to be of use to us for this. The first one is microwaves, a little bit different than the frequencies that are used for uh, microwave ovens, but basically they're short wavelength radio waves. They have frequencies between 1,000 and 10,000 megahertz. To put that in perspective, it's a little bit higher frequency than the FM radio band, which usually runs up around 100 megahertz, for example, at the top end round numbers. This will turn out, as we'll see, to be a very useful place because it's a regime of frequency where there are not a lot of natural processes that produce radio radio wavelength emission naturally, and so the universe is relatively quiet in this region of frequencies. And so any signal that suddenly popped up with order on it would stand out like a cosmic sore thumb. The other regime, which I'm not going to say as much about today because it's still very speculative, is in the visible or infrared wavelength region, which you think would be basically a wash in starlight, and is. That starlight is very, very broad band. It emits light from basically thermal spectra as the primary source of visible and infrared light in the universe. But if you could somehow get a source of light which has an exceedingly narrow bandpass, we have those. They're called lasers. Basically, light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation. In this case, a little diode laser in my pointer which makes bright green light or red light. That is a highly unnatural process, at least in the sense it's a natural physical process, to be sure. But there aren't very many natural sources, astrophysical sources of lasing that we've ever found. In fact, I don't know of any either visible or infrared laser that has ever been detected astrophysically. They've been proposed. The process that occurs within the little diode that makes my green light laser can, in fact, have analogous things occur at visible wavelengths, but we never found one. We've never actually confirmed that. It certainly can occur at microwave wavelengths. There are things called astrophysical masers, microwave amplification through stimulated emission of radiation, that do in fact stand out, but they're all associated with very particular astrophysical, easily identifiable astrophysical phenomena. So we wouldn't want to shine a maser out in space because they would say, oh, that's a hydroxyl maser, big deal, it's a young star-forming object, ignore it. There's, they're all over the place. But a visible or infrared light laser are so rare in our searches for them that if we cannot find any real astrophysical sources, if we could figure out a way to do this, that would be a really interesting way to communicate over long distances. It's extremely narrow band and extremely directed, but it can carry a tremendous density of information inside of it. So an advanced civilization would probably come down to this. In fact, we're using lasers now for communication with satellites and other things. It's used for extremely secure, narrow-band communications. We've talked about laser technologies, both infrared and visible, as a possibility of having very high-bandwidth communication with interplanetary probes and things like that. We haven't yet broken through to to full deployment, but there's been talk, for example, I I don't know how far it's gotten on things like using lasers for Mars probes for very, very high bandwidth. Imagine, basically, bring the Internet to Mars. That's what a laser communication might do for you. But we're going to concentrate today on the microwaves and the radio, because that's the more traditional line. So this particular picture here shows the radio spectrum of the galaxy, looking in all directions. In fact, it's not only the galaxy, but the whole universe. The sort of light purple line here is the general background of galactic radio emission that we see in the sky. It goes extremely high at very short frequencies and very low frequencies. The reason for that is, it's very easy to make radio radiation if I simply accelerate electrons in a plasma. And one thing the galaxy is full of is electrons in a plasma. But once you get to higher frequencies, that corresponds to much higher energy radiation. and We don't have those really high energy processes at the very high frequencies. So there's a natural fall off in the background radio radiation from the thermal motions in magnetic fields of electrons. This is sort of the thermal background and the so-called synchrotron background of the galaxy. So very long frequencies out around were radio wavelengths. So here, for example, is 100 megahertz. That's sort of the end of the FM dial. If you listen to that hiss on our FM radio that's tuned off of a band, some of that is noise from the motor in your car. Some of it is, in fact, part of the galactic background. As I go to longer frequencies, sort of gigahertz frequencies here, tens of gigahertz getting up towards terahertz here, there's a dip. There's two spectral features. Which are out there, due to hydrogen and hydroxyl OH, the other half of water, if you will, which is H2O. There's very two very strong features that we study astrophysically. This one's about 1420 megahertz, which is the hydrogen emission line, it's the hi- hydrogen hyperfine structure line. We use it to map the hydrogen gas in our galaxy. This other place down here, just to the side, is at 1640 megahertz, is a hydroxyl emission line. There are hydroxyl OH um, emission lines, for example, from water what are called uh, hydroxyl masers in young stellar objects or outflows from evolved stars. So again, two very astrophysically distinct emission regimes, but right between them is complete silence. Or at least as close to silence, relatively speaking, as anything else. As we get to higher frequencies, we start picking up thermal emission from hot dust and hot gas, we start seeing absorption by oxygen and water vapor in our own atmosphere. Not only does the universe become slightly opaque to our atmosphere, but there also turns out to be a tremendous increase in the background noise, and eventually we start getting up into actual thermal infrared emission. So there's a little window in the universe, which is relatively quiet, has a paucity of astrophysical sources of radiation, and is referred to generically because it's brack- bracketed by hydrogen and hydroxyl, the components of water. It was called by a study astronomer whose name I think is Bennett, Bennett? Bennett. Bennett. I probably said that wrong. Dubbed this the water hole. So if if you were an astrophysically aware civilization, you would map the galaxy in hydrogen, you knew where hydroxyl was, you were mapping out the universe and sort of looking at the constituents of the universe, there's this natural place where your radio telescopes would already be looking for general science, which would be a perfect place to say... Let's transmit into the water hole, because someone might be looking there for other reasons. We've been looking there for years, mapping the galaxy. So this is what the, the existence of the water hole and the existence of radio technology, especially after World War II, led to the idea in the 1960s that the sensitivity of our radio telescopes and the size of the radio telescopes had gotten to the point that we should be able to detect even our own stray radio emission from space. One of the real pioneers of this in the early 1960s was Frank Drake, who we've already met. He's, that's one of the reasons why he th- was thinking about the Drake Equation, which came up in the early 1960s. He started out at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory uh, site at Green Bank, West Virginia. And in many ways, I think, you know, success has many fathers. Frank is, would maybe be, possibly be called the, the father of SETI, but probably is really more the godfather because there are many people who were involved in this The other person whose picture I've shown up here who personifies the SETI efforts is Dr. Jill Tarter of the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. As you can imagine, a project looking for extraterrestrial intelligence, as you might imagine, brings the crazies out of the woodwork. And this would be a field which would have a very, very bad repute. In some corners of the science, it still does. It strikes you as, as a slightly crazy thing to do. But I think what really the reason, one of the main reasons why this is still considered to be a legitimate work is because of the tireless efforts of Jill Tarter to really bring scientific rigor to the study. I don't know if she would agree with this, but I would say one thing that Jill has done is she sets an extremely high standard and she's helped weed the crazies out and really bring down the technology to be done with this, the scientific approaches to this and the technological and organization of this. And so, really, I'd say these two people more than, and there's lots of people, but these two people especially really embody the, 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 the brains behind our modern SETI um, approaches. And there are two basic strategies that have been pursued. The idea is it's very, very simple. All you do is listen. You make no assumptions whatsoever. You sort of set the, even the Drake equation aside. And you say, if they're out there and they're making radio noise, we should be able to detect that radio noise. It will be artificial because any kind of signaling we do stands out. It doesn't look like a natural astrophysical signal. It's very narrow band. It contains a high information density. It has a lot of modulation as we put information out, like radio or TV or computerized Internet communication. It's very ordered in a way that astrophysical stuff is not. So simply go out and scan the sky and see what there is. If anyone's out there and we're close enough to them, we should be able to pick them up. That's the idea. It's a very simple idea. There's two basic ways you can do this. One of the strategies approaches is to do what's called a so-called targeted study. It's where you use dedicated facilities, dedicated observing facilities, for example, like radio telescope fields, specialized receivers, and you go out and you target particular stars. You do make a couple of assumptions. Assume, for example, that life arose around sun-like stars. You go out and you just simply go around listening to star after star and targeting all the nearby sun-like stars within our local volume of space. And you can do this with radio waves, which are not blocked by dust and gas, out to very large distances. Literally, you could do it for the whole galaxy, but you could do it for, for example, a volume of 1,000 light-years around us. It takes time. You basically just go star to star, listen, move on, listen, move on, listen, move on and just kind of dial around the sky. It takes a lot of resources and takes a lot of uh, computing power to pull that off. The other way is pure serendipity projects. You basically piggyback on gigantic radio telescopes that are normally going out and doing other astrophysical research. And so you basically look in more or less the same direction of the sky that someone's science project to study, the, thus and such a nebula, happens to be looking at the time. You will, over time, basically get free observing time because you're using the sidebands. You're basically using the unused capacity of this gigantic radio telescope to listen on the frequencies in the waterhole you're interested in, but you're not getting in the way of, oh, the person, say, mapping hydrogen in this particular galaxy in that direction or something is doing. So you can use, th- there are unique factors, right? In a telescope, you can think of a telescope as people lined up looking one after another through the eyepiece. Radio telescopes actually have the ability to have multiple projects going on at once, provided you all agree to look at the same part of the sky. Since most people can't agree to look at the same part of the sky for their science, you usually just have one person on the scope at a time. But the study people don't care where you look, just as long as you look, and so they can piggyback on this using other receivers. And so both Drake and Tartar and their collaborators over the years have developed a series of strategies that use both of these for doing this sort of long, slow, steady radio search at the sky. I'm going to give two examples. There are a number of these that have come and gone at various times, but these are two that are currently active. One of these, an example of the piggyback type study, is called CERENDIP, which is an acronym that stands for The Search for Extraterrestrial Radio Emissions from Nearby Developed Intelligent Populations. You can tell they picked the acronym and then figured out how to expand it from that. It's operated by a collaboration primarily out of UC Berkeley and also Cornell University, which is part of the operations of the giant Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico. This is a 1,000-foot diameter radio dish that is built into a natural bowl valley in the mountains of Puerto Rico, at a place called Arecibo. Uh, The locals call it El Radar. Uh, It's actually used for atmospheric research as well. You can beam radiation out with it. Arecibo really figures highly in in SETI-type studies. Uh, those of you who've seen either the movie Contact or um, one, of the James, one of the bad James Bond films, this, this figure, this was, this, it was really great. It was sort of, they had the whole crew out there for this. often shows up in movies. The Serendip main receiver just sits up in a bank with a whole bunch of the other receivers that are used for regular science projects. And they just simply run all the time listening to the sky. What the receiver is, is actually it's a spectrometer. It can listen to multiple wavelength channels sitting in around the the so-called water hole. So you can, looking for very, very narrow frequency intervals, so you want to scan over a fairly large frequency region in the water hole, but you're looking for a narrow band ordered signal. This thing takes, as you can imagine, a tremendous quantity of data. And the problem is you can take more data than you have people in hands to analyze it. And so they've done something rather rather cute. They partnered up with some computer science people at Berkeley and developed a screensaver program called SETI at Home. Any, any of you run SETI at Home by any chance? You can go down, get this thing, download it. There's a screensaver. When the screensaver basically is a program that kicks on when your computer is idle, when you're not using it, and it kind of shows you know, pretty dancing bunnies or flying toasters or something in the background... It's kind of a waste of all that hard hardware You've got, we got sitting on, on, in basements and, and places around the world. So instead of just simply idly showing you pictures of flying toasters, what happens is the screensaver comes on, opens up an Internet program, downloads a small piece of the Serendip database, and runs basically the analysis on it. Gets the result using your computer in the background, and then sends the result back to the home base in Berkeley. And so anytime your computer comes off, it can use, literally, the unused compute cycles of millions of home computers can be used to help analyze the incredible ton of data that's pouring out of Serendip every single night and day, because you can run the radio astronomy in the day. So this is a screenshot of sort of what would appear on your uh, on your computer while SETI at home is running. I, I used to run this on my computer at home until I realized it's a good idea to turn off the computer to save electricity. <laughs> but you, you sit there and download a piece and it does its little Fourier analysis and, and everybody can sort of, you know, take part in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence signals. And, of course, whether anything comes up, if any red flags come up on any of these things, of course, they get reanalyzed. But there's a tr- it's a way of sorting through data. It's called distributed computing. Kind of cool. The second approach that people are trying, and this is one that's currently a work in progress, not quite up to full speed, is to do a so-called targeted survey. This particular targeted survey is going to be an array of 350 specially designed radio antennas made into a very, very large sparse array which together simulates an extremely large radio dish all by itself. It uses a technique called aperture synthesis. Use electronics to gang together all of these things instead of using one gigantic dish which is very, very expensive to build. Arecibo is a very expensive facility. And you can see you can make them pretty large. The dishes themselves are relatively small. In fact, they look like satellite dishes, or big satellite dishes. That's not too surprising. The original concept was to use a bunch of off-the-shelf satellite dishes to be able to build a big, cheap array. Well, it turns out when you start looking at the actual technical requirements, it ain't so cheap and it ain't so off-the-shelf. And so they needed to seek some money. And actually, it was founded in part by Microsoft founder Paul Allen, who's one of the dot-com gazillionaires. Um, the idea is 350 of these antennas, this is part of the initial array down here down at the Hat Creek Observatory in California, will eventually grow to the full 350. There'll be a computer correlation facility in the middle to collect the data and analyze it. Maybe they'll actually spit some of this data out on the, uh, on the SETI at home program. This is a lot of the same people, the SETI Institute are involved in this, Mountain View. Uh, the idea here, though, is they're going to do a targeted survey to particular stars. They're going to be looking at all the sun-like stars within some volume every night as, as often as they can, star after star, night after night, day after day, looking for some kind of signal from something. And this project is still getting underway. They've got most of the funding, but it's taking them time to put it together. should become active. It's already active with a small number of, of antennas, but it will become more active as time goes on. So those are two examples of the projects. There are bigger and smaller projects going on. What are we looking for? Well, the thing we're looking for is we're looking for a signal that appears artificial in origin. What do I mean by that? Well, it's got a couple of properties. One of them is, again, we expect a very, very narrow bandwidth, a bandwidth of basically 300 hertz, which is narrower than the narrowest natural wavelength sources that we get, except for masers, which are completely crazy. But masers, we know where those are, and we simply avoid the frequencies where those exist. So you're looking for a narrow bandwidth. That's what we use. A cell phone uses a very narrow bandwidth of frequencies to communicate information from, from itself to the tower. You're also looking for pulsed signals, signals that go from high power to low power very quickly, and they switch on and off in a particular pattern. You can imagine, sort of think of the old uh, idea of, you know, like the Morse code, you know, beep, 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 that's a pulsing pattern. You can relay information that way. Digital signals, like, in, again, in your cell phones. I'm sure almost everyone in this room has a cell phone. It transmits the information digitally because you can compress a lot of information, and you can make that information relatively error-free by doing this very fast digital pulsing. So it's a very common way to encode information. The other thing you get in an artificial source is you get very little frequency drift. It's very rock steady at a particular frequency. It might use maser cavities. It might use crystal oscillators. Basically, you work really hard to keep your frequencies real narrow, especially if you're doing communication. In telecommunication, you don't want just one channel. You want hundreds of channels side by side so everybody in the room can talk in their cell phone at once without interfering with each other. To do that, you have to have tremendous frequency stability so one channel doesn't kind of wander over into the other one and you suddenly find yourself, instead of talking to your boyfriend, talking to somebody's Aunt Betsy in New York. Okay. So that's what we do with frequency drift. So again, tight control of electromagnetic radiation is a hallmark of intelligent intent behind using this as a communication medium. So far, we haven't seen anything. But we have seen one thing that's actually rather interesting this is um, Unfortunately, this is the best graphic I could find on the web, so I apologize for the quality here. This is an example of one of the outputs from one of these narrowband receivers, or broadband narrow spectral receivers here. This is actually from an earlier version of what became Serendip. It was referred to as Project Phoenix. The name was uh, basically given because the original project was canceled by Congress because they thought it was such a boondoggle and a waste of the public's money, private money and sort of came along and helped uh, resurrect the project from its ashes like a phoenix, hence the name. Well, you'd really like to know if you could detect an artificial signal. You've made all these theoretical calculations. Turns out there are lots of artificial signals out there. They're on board the spacecraft we've sent into the outer solar system. They're transmitting information in narrow bands, and we can watch them do their thing. Here's one of these plots. It's called a waterfall plot. What you're actually plotting here is along the horizontal line are different frequency channels with these very, very narrow bands. I'm I'm drawing a blank. It's probably a few hundred hertz bandwidth here. Maybe 100 hertz, 200 hertz. I can't remember which, but fairly narrow. And then you're looking over some frequency interval, which I could read if the pixelation didn't screw it up. And you notice that most of it is just noise, junk, garbage. But then there's this line that runs diagonally through it really stands out. Even though individually, each individual signal channel is very weak, it's an ordered signal, and it's very narrow in wavelength. It just pops right out at you. That's the radio, signal, radio telemetry signal coming from the Pioneer 10 spacecraft, which at this particular time this data was taken was well outside the orbit of Pluto. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, Professor. You said something about frequency stability. Look at the frequency drift there. Yeah, the frequency is drifting because the spacecraft is moving and so is the Earth and we're seeing the relative Doppler shifts change. So we can actually see that, oh, you know, that's not E.T. phoning home or trying to phone us. That's a spacecraft in our own solar system because I can see the slow secular motion due to the rotation of the Earth and the orbit of the Earth around the sun, seeing the Doppler motions from that. So I can actually tell a source that is extrasolar, from a source that is artificial within our own solar system that, oh, say, we might have built. Oh, gee, we forgot about that old Soviet Cosmos satellite that's making a lot of noise. It's going to move real fast on the sky because it's close by. It's going to give itself away. And have you ever seen the movie Contact? A couple people. There's a scene at the very end of the movie where Jodie Foster's character is is getting hammered away in this by James Wood, who is the sort of the, the big bad government person in this, in this hearing. And he's saying, well, how do you know it's not artificial? How do you know it's not a fake signal? Whoever wrote the script for that didn't really consult with too many astronomers. She gave bad astronomy answers for someone who's a good astronomer. You would have been able to tell if it was a source in our own solar system. It would have stood out like a sore thumb in terms of its secular motion. So this is one of the signposts we're looking for. A very, very distant signal we wouldn't see the frequency drifts due to motion in our own solar system. Really can discriminate. So that's about as good as we've gotten. Well, okay. There's another. And, of course, it's got an Ohio State connection. There's one bit of lore in the SETI world which has its partisans both for and against. I I will confess I'm on the skeptical side. The so-called wow signal. Now, Ohio State used to have a radio telescope called the Big Ear. It was out up north in Delaware. If you've ever been up to the Perkins Observatory, there's a golf course there. It used to be, up until a few years ago, you could go out the backside of Perkins, and there was a gigantic 300-foot radio telescope, which was not run by the astronomy department. It was run by the Department of Engineering, a guy named, uh, a guy named Krauss, who, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago. He's been, he was here at Ohio State for a long time. One of the inventors of helical antennas, among other things. Now, the Big Ear was one of the first all-sky radio surveys that was taken and, uh, undertaken, and it was used to look for basically quasars and other bright celestial radio sources. But over the years, they kind of got into the whole SETI thing when other observatories, basically much more advanced in technology, pretty much rolled past them. Back in the 70s, when this stuff was still pretty out there and crazy, They set up, basically, just sort of let the... This thing basically sits there, and and the sky kind of turns above you as the Earth rotates. And on on the night of August 15th of 1977, uh, Dr. Ehrman... Ehrman was his name. I can't remember. Jeremy Ehrman? Jeremy Ehrman was watching the printouts coming. This was on an old line feed, tractor feed printer. was printing out the numbers. This was basically about a 40-odd channel, a 50-channel spectrometer, each in a particular narrow band, and you see 1s and 2s that's a coding with the alphabet of what the signal strength was. And pretty much not, not much is going on. There's kind of a measurement error every every few uh, seconds. It, it runs every basically about 12 seconds or so. And then for a 72-second period, the numbers just went nuts in this one channel, not in the surrounding channels. So you had a high-frequency stability. It stayed in the same channel. It was extremely narrow band. It was very strong and coherent, but it lasted only 72 seconds and never appeared again. While going over the chart, he sort of saw this sudden cluster of numbers, circled it and said, wow. This became known in SETI lore as the wow signal. Various analyses of this afterwards said it had a lot of the properties I've just described for what we expected for a non-terrestrial source, They suggested, although, again, this analysis is highly disputed, and there's equal arguments for and against that it could be of non-solar origin, its 72 seconds of fame is up, and it's never, ever repeated in that frequency band that anyone has ever seen from that part of the sky. Now, this is a big, crude radio telescope. It's looking at a huge swath of the sky. My own feeling is I'm on the skeptical side. I think this is basically just a burst of some kind of noise. Could have been a problem in their amplifiers. Could have been something else. Other people think otherwise. But this is the kind of thing we'd see. But again, extraordinary results require extraordinary uh, proofs. And the extraordinary proof you've got to have to make this convincing is you've got to see it again. It's got to repeat. No civilization is just going to squirt information out and hope in 72 seconds you catch the info. It's going to keep transmitting over and over again in all directions. Or it's going to make noise constantly. This is the sort of thing you want to see, but you want to see it sustained day after day, year after year from the same part of space. Then you're going to be believing. Otherwise, it's just one data point. Uh, I don't think it's real. Turns out, we were talking mostly about listening... Turns out we've been on the air for quite a while. In fact, we've been on the air. The Earth has been broadcasting on the air, radiating radio wavelength radiation into space for the last 80 years. In fact, you could probably go back to 100 years, but there wasn't a whole lot of it. But in the 1920s, radio, radio telegraph just took off. Got up to the 1940s, we add television to the mix. Shortly after World War II, television takes off. And then broadcast television, broadcast radio, cell phones, military communication, civilian communication. Tremendous amount of radio noise. It turns out that if we add up total power of all the broadcast antennas on the Earth, we could detect this with our current technology. If a similarly radio noisy planet were sitting out there in a circle variously estimated between 20 and 100 light-years from the Earth. So as you move further out away from the Earth, you go multiple light-years out in distance. So depending upon which star you're on, if you're listening to the Earth, you're watching our TV. So for example, if you're on Capella, you're probably right in the middle of the uh, original Star Trek series, and the end of the series is going to come sweeping across you in a couple of years. If you're way out here towards some random stars like Aldebaran, you're probably watching the radio traffic from World War II, which is probably not going to want to make you uh, deal with us very much. Vega, well, they're picking up much more recent stuff. If you think Miami Vice is a sign of intelligence, they're about to find out on Vega. So basically, we've been beaming stuff into the heavens for almost 100 years now. Now, do we really want other civilizations watching our news broadcasts or worse, some of our sitcoms or anything else? And it was at this point when I was preparing my lecture, I was thinking, you know, this is a point I could make some kind of rude political joke about saying, do we really want the aliens to be listening to Glenn Beck and piss off E.T.? But then you realize, no, you know, that's cable. And that brings up an important point. We have been producing. We make lots of radio radiation, but actually, the Earth has been steadily getting more and more radio quiet, or at least the growth of our radio radiation has actually been falling off. And in part, you can blame the Verizon guy here. How many of you actually watch TV over over an over-the-air over-the-air antenna? Yeah, one or two. Most of you, if you get your TV, get your TV with cable or nowadays even internet. That's closed channel doesn't produce sideband radiation. It wants to be as efficient as possible to keep it in the cable or keep it in the fiber. So optical fiber communication is basically ruling long-distance communication now. We used to radio broadcast off our ionosphere. We now dump it through an undersea cable because we can get way more bandwidth if we use infrared laser technology. We just don't have to, we don't make any stray stuff. There's no junk radiation going off into space. All that junk radiation costs us energy and costs us bandwidth, and maybe let someone else listen in our communication who we don't want to. So closed-channel communication has been the increasing rule for high-bandwidth communication. So as our technology is advanced, we're actually going to get radio quiet eventually, because it's the most efficient way to communicate. In fact, it may turn out to be that the most advanced civilizations are the most radio quiet, because there's a real premium for doing things efficiently. So this means actually something sort of turns this whole idea of SETI on its ear. We might only pick up those civilizations that are just getting going with radio communication. And then once, like us, we kind of learn how to do it right, we cut down on the waste, we go radio quiet. So the only place you could be found if you're an advanced civilization is if you want to be found by deliberately broadcasting. By now not just simply relying on leakage but actually beaming messages at people. We've done this. Now, some people get nervous about this. Do you want them to know we're here? Look, they already know we're here, and they know we're violent, because that's the first signal's getting out to... <clears throat> excuse us. But we can actually take our radio telescopes and point it out somewhere. So when the radio telescope at Arecibo was refurbished in 1974, Frank Drake and Carl Sagan and a n- number of others coded up the so-called Arecibo message and blasted it just one time, no repeats, towards the globular cluster M13, 25,000 light years away. Why? Eh, it was up in the sky and they could do it. But the ideas remained. Here's the coding. Zeros for blanks and ones for white, although this has been color-coded so you can take it apart, and they developed this very simple message which is contained in something like 1,627 bits, ones and zeros. 1,627 is a product of two prime numbers. It's called, it's called a bi-prime. So any mathematically sophisticated civilization would say, oh, cool, that's not normally a natural number, and could, in fact, pick this apart into a picture, which contains a lot of information. Your homework number four is a similarly crafted uh, such message, which your job is to take apart. But we've also sent some physical artifacts out. That Pioneer 10 spacecraft, on its way out of the solar system, carries a small plaque describing the spacecraft, direction to pulsars, a little model of our solar system, and a little picture of us, or some representation of us. The Voyager spacecraft 1 and 2 actually carries a phonograph record made out of gold on the cover. Underneath the cover is instructions for how it is to be used and where the spacecraft came from. These are the ultimate in long shots. Space is really empty and really dark. Maybe no one will ever pick this up. Maybe someone will. Maybe it's a record of what we are. It's less an attempt to communicate directly as to say, like a cave painting of a hand, I've been here, and we are here, and we were able to do this. So this is kind of where SETI is going. We listen, and we'll transmit. So nothing has been found yet, but it's an approach to ask the question, are we alone, but also to say, we are here. Any questions? Good. Well, We'll see you all tomorrow then.